The song itself is enough to fill your heart, but then to have it sung with the voice of an angel, wow. My goodness. How can you listen to that song and not smile? I, I, you can't. I dare you. Let's go to God in prayer. Oh, God, may we just, in our small voices, lift up and say again how great you are, how wonderful you are, how grateful we are. We pray this morning, God, that if we have come with expectations of what you will give us, that we might step back for a moment, open our hearts to what we have to give to you in adoration and praise and worship, in giving you attention when you touch us on the shoulder with a lump in our throat, a tear in our eye, a memory, a sigh, all the things that remind us that you are fully present, that you have invited us into this place of worship, but you invite us into an attitude of worship at all times, a life of gratitude. We pray, God, that it will be your spirit that will enlighten our hearts and that will illuminate our minds as we receive your word today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's a wonderful poet by the name of Anne Weems who wrote one of her books of poetry was called Kneeling in Jerusalem. And she wrote this, Death abides not on a hill called Golgotha, but in every heart that makes room. Life abides not outside a garden tomb in Jerusalem, but in every heart that makes room. As we move past the holy season of Easter, I think it's sometimes easy to sit back and breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief that the demanding darkness of Lent and the studying and all the things that you encounter when you come into uh, the worship, the Holy Week, the Monday, Thursday, the Good Friday, all that's pulled out of you that culminates in Easter that is finished for another year. And we can simply now return to our normal ways of practicing our faith, expect the normal of what when we come to church, expect the normal of what we have to give to God. And sometimes we can fool ourselves into believing that everything is normal. It never is with God. It's never normal. There's always Easter, there's always Christmas, there's always Pentecost, there's always resurrection. There's always the unexpected when it comes to God because God is fully present and alive in the world at all times. But as Anne's poem reminds us, there is always a choice between us on how we'll live those ordinary days. Because the living God doesn't hibernate between our marks and our occasions. Within the frozen pages of time or a book or a study. But the living God is in the very breath that we breathe every minute. Breathing out and breathing in. It is the breath of God that began the spark of life for each and every one of us. 
And that breath compels us forward always, forward movement towards a deep and wide place within the large story of God. And the words of God in Deuteronomy haunt us. I have set before you, says the Lord our God, life and death, blessings and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him, and holding fast to him. So then, what's in front of us as post-Easter people? We have never known the world without resurrection. Never. We have always been post-Easter people. What does that mean? Does that mean that we've completed the journey? Well, today I'd like to explore that question through the accounts of those first eyewitnesses, the disciples. And our scripture lesson this morning leads us into that exploration. Our scripture this morning is from John 20, 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it on my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. My friends, the word of the Lord. The first thing that I want you to note about this uh, second resurrection story is the timing. And this is very important. And and there's a point to noticing these things. So if you can take the things that I urge you to notice and hold them in one hand while you listen as the story progresses in the other, it will begin to make more sense. And the story begins to have a little bit more flesh than we normally will give it. 
Look at the timing of the story. It's the evening of the day of resurrection. It's in the evening. The doors are shut for fear of the Jews. So the disciples are still huddled in the upper room. And this implies that the disciples had not believed the women's report that day that Jesus had risen. And that they were still hiding and fearful. This is important to notice, particularly in light of the popular interpretation of the interaction between Jesus and Thomas later on, that even left Thomas with a label called doubting, when actually he demanded the same thing that all the other disciples demanded. It's important to understand this because this story, if seen as a story about a doubter, can become a distraction from the real story that it left exposed. Here, the disciples gathered in that upper room do not believe the women and their doubts are every bit as great until the physical presence of Jesus appears in this locked room. And do you notice what Jesus says to them before they even before they'll even admit or say it's the Lord. Jesus comes to them and says, peace be with you. And then he says, he showed them his hands and his side. Then it says the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. This was after Jesus had done the same thing for them that he later does for Thomas. Thomas wasn't with them. So later Thomas asked for the same demonstration and the same physicality that the disciples had to have before they were able to actually admit that Jesus had risen from the dead. So in that moment when they didn't believe and they hid in the upper room, there was something that happened. There was also a breaking down of community because there were the women that told them that Jesus had risen And in that moment, they did not trust or believe what they were hearing from their fellow disciples, from the women. And that community would have to be rebuilt in faith and trust. Later, Thomas, who wasn't even there, began to uh, understand, and he uttered the most famous confession that we can find and the very first one that we can find in scripture where he said my lord and my god it never says he actually touched jesus but it does say he believed as soon as jesus talked to him so the encounter between jesus and thomas is really not about good friday or easter But what it does is it marks an opening for each of us. It's a moment in time for each of us. It's a new stage of faith and church life. A time in the not-so-distant future where everybody would be a post-Easter person. Uh, Where there were no longer any eyewitnesses left of the physical Jesus And taste and see would only be in the sacraments as symbols, as we will encounter them today 
and not physical. We now enter a post-Easter evolving faith where hearing becomes the primary means of knowing Christ rather than seeing. So now we return to the larger story, the story which this is really all about. The good news of Easter is really never simply the assurance that God has conquered death. It is always as a statement about mission. It's about what God has done and then what God sends us to do. We can never think of it whittled down to an act. Any more than Christmas is just about Jesus being born. But Christmas is also about Easter. And it's also about the need for Christmas. What brought God into the world in the first place? It is a bigger story. It's about mission, and Jesus' resurrection implicates a mission, a mission that draws us into a world of God's love for the world and empowering us by the Spirit to love as God loves. All of a sudden, we become very important and significant in the purpose and the mission of Christ. The first of the three appearances of the risen Jesus to his disciples, if you look at the first three times, you'll see the four really main themes of John being lifted out. And those main themes in John are, one, fear of the Jews. Two, Jesus' bestowal of peace. He says, peace be with you. He says it four times in the last scriptures that we just read in this one passage. Peace be with you. In John, it's also about sending and being sent. And it's about the gift of the Holy Spirit, which we see all encapsulated, even within this small frame of verses. So as I've said before, our text begins with fear. There's a locked room. There are shell-shocked disciples. It's the breaking down of community as they chose not to believe the eyewitnesses of the women. And into this fearful place, Jesus steps with his greeting, peace. Peace, he says to them, not once, but he says it three times. Can you imagine how their knees were shaking and their hearts were pounding when this man appears to them and he's vaguely familiar but not quite familiar until he speaks and then all of a sudden there he is? I can't even imagine. The peace that Jesus brings, however, is a very different peace than what we ordinarily think of as peaceful. And it defies all the popular notions that define peace as something that is simply the absence of conflict or the presence of quiet and rest. Everyone agreeing and getting along. Those are the popular notions of peace, but... When we connect Jesus' declaration of peace to them and he's impressing upon them the wounds of his crucifixion, his announcement of his intention to send his disciples in the same way that he was sent by his Father and the gift of the Holy Spirit, taken together, we can only conclude that the peace Jesus offers actually has nothing to do with tranquility, harmony, 
or affability. Nothing. More, it has to do with being at peace in your own skin because you are doing what you are supposed to do. You are who you are supposed to be in relationship to this God who has created us. In this passage, Jesus invites his disciples into the same activity of peacemaking that characterized his own life and mission. And it's that same activity that led him to the cross. An activity possible for us in the here and now and only through the power of the Holy Spirit. The peace of Jesus is the kind of peace that brings back into the fold the outcast and the marginalized. That's the peace of Christ. Those who feel safe with us. It's the kind of peace that turns upside down social and societal conventions of first and last, blessed and cursed, poor and rich. We saw that in the Beatitudes. Jesus trying to say, here's the real picture of how it all works in the world, not the false picture that you've been fed. Do you want to know what the kingdom looks like? Go back and read the Beatitudes. That's the kingdom of God. Jesus' peace invites the lion to see the lamb as neighbor and friend. The Jew to speak with the Samaritan and the prostitute to have dinner with the Pharisee. So, those of us who wish to call ourselves Jesus' disciples must be equally willing to commit ourselves to Jesus' type of peacemaking, an activity that surely also will be costly and challenging today as it was 2,000 years ago. It may not seem like it because it's so vivid and brutal in ancient times, but there is a brutality that exists in our own day and age, a, a brutality of marginalization, a brutality of haves and have-nots, and the gap widening, a brutality of withholding, and not sharing. The radical vision of the kingdom of God, I think, is no less threatening in society today than it was in Jesus' time. And it's no less threatening to those who work for it. For those who work for inclusion rather than ostracization. For those who actually are willing to love their enemies. Or at least let God love their enemies until we get the hang of it. for those who are willing to stand up for justice against the oppressed, in this, as in the scripture that we just read, over and over again, reiterating what Jesus was all about. As post-Easter people, what we have to know is what Jesus was all about and be all about what Jesus was all about. And when we make our life choices with kingdom principles, we must also be prepared for rejection and some harassment and maybe some actual disbelief and suspicion by people of our motives. I remember I was in a conference once and I was asked to speak on a particular topic. And mainly what I did was just lift up a particular scripture and reiterate that scripture. And, you know, I couldn't say it any better than the scripture did. And 
a man came up to me afterwards, and he was about 6'2", I think. Maybe about 6'2", about 270. And I'm five feet tall, and I'm not going to tell you how much I weigh. So uh, anyway, he came up to me, but he came like really close into my personal bubble, you know, and towered over me, shaking his finger in my face like this, you know, like I was a little kid, telling me how naive I was to, you know, to have this belief about this and this and this. And, and I mean, this was a Christian convention. And I'm like, I said, I'm not naive. I said, it's just what the Bible says. And he says, well, that's all a matter of interpretation. So uh, I thought, I don't think it was a matter of interpretation. I think it was a matter of what didn't sit well with what Jesus was saying to him. And so it was, it was easier to point his finger at me than it was at Jesus. Let me put it that way. I think it is easier to do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it pretty bluntly. He said, when Christ calls a person... He bids that person to come and die. And what that, you know, basically what that really means for us here in the, you know, northern American Western civilization is to die to all the stuff that we believe to be true and to believe Jesus. And to believe what is true is what the gospel tells us what is true. And to die to ourselves as Jesus died to himself. That's the language we use even in baptism. A few of us Christians in the global north, few of us will ever face death, physical death, for our discipleship. But the fact remains that following Christ and engaging in his peacemaking activity continues to bring us into conflict. Well, what kind of conflict? Well, sometimes it brings us into conflict with public policies, and we have to speak up and out and against or stand up for Sometimes it brings us in conflict with laws. Sometimes it brings us in conflict with social norms. And sometimes I think the worst one of all is when it brings us into conflict with our political selves, where politically we believe a certain way, but it just can't hold up in the gospel. It just can't hold up. And when we're faced with a choice of how do we vote or how do we act or how do we think or how do we believe, do we want to go the way of our predisposition or or are we willing to maybe put our predisposition or presumptions aside and go the way of the gospel? Well, all of those are costs. And these actions show to those with eyes to see that there's a new way of being in the world. And there's a vision inspired by the inbreaking of the kingdom of God present in Jesus' very existence. When Jesus came, the kingdom of God became present in the world. And if we take this call and consequences seriously, It's pretty obvious that by ourselves, human beings really, we're not capable of following Jesus by ourselves. We just can't do it. The power of distraction and doubt and self-preservation are just too strong. By ourselves, we want too much to fit in 
to maintain our social status, to preserve our privilege and good name, and all of which are threatened by Jesus' activities of peacemaking. And in one of the most powerful aspects of the gospel text, Christians are reminded that we never have to stand alone in any of this, that we don't step out on a limb by ourselves with everybody else we know sawing off the other end, that Jesus that Jesus is the very tree that we're of the limb, that there is no limb that we stand out of when we stand up for Jesus, that Jesus has stood up for us and will stand up for us through all eternity. The text tells us that the resurrected Jesus came and stood among the disciples and breathed upon them the Holy Spirit. And the phrase, breathed upon them, is the identical phrase that was used in Genesis 2 when the Lord God breathed life into Adam, who came and became a living soul. It's the very same breath used in both texts. So in this beautiful symmetry that we can only really see in John, we see John beginning with this this ancient text from Genesis. In the beginning, John says, just like Genesis. And now we see the same thing. The Lord God breathed into them. And here we see Jesus breathed into them. And here came the Holy Spirit. It's a brand new creation. As Jesus breathes his life-giving spirit into his disciples. And it's the same spirit. The same spirit that moved over the chaos. And became articulate in the eight. God said and it was good. Commands that created the heavens and the earth. And this same spirit now moves in the disciples so that they can continue the creation work of Christ. And then that's not even the most exciting news. The most exciting news is that that same spirit that hovered over the waters and brought form out of chaos and that same spirit breathed into the disciples so that they could make a new thing has been breathed into us, that same spirit. It's not a mundane, ordinary, normal spirit. It is an ancient, primordial, eternal spirit that has been breathed into us for whatever it is that we need to do. That same spirit transforming that motley crew of fishermen, tax collectors, into followers, into an indefatigable troop of missionaries that have literally transformed the world, this same Holy Spirit continues to live with us, making the impossible possible with the power of God. So here's the thing. If seeing really is the most powerful way to belief, then let those of us who have heard Let those of us who have heard be seen. And then let the world, every lonely and broken heart, see Christ and feel Christ and touch Christ in the love and care of the body of Christ for them. Amen.